Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and I want to thank you so much for being here and being a proactive parent and getting the resources that you need to help your child get better because our kids have a lot of health issues. My own son was once diagnosed with autism, and it's a biological issue. There, there are a lot of gut issues. There are a lot of, uh, of toxins in their system and inflammation. And if you can reduce those, you can reduce or even for some remove the, uh, the uh, symptoms of autism, which was the case for my son. So I'm here to help you. I'm glad that you're here getting the resources again. Uh, I have today's show is sponsored by my free online workshop, The Four Stages to Naturally Recover from the Symptoms of Autism. And I've created it just for you for parents uh, to, so you know what the stages are and kind of the things that are necessary in the process of autism recovery. And stage one is healing the gut. Stage two is natural heavy metal detoxification. Stage three is clearing those co-infections like mold, Lyme, and strep. And then stage four is brain support and repair. And that is available to you right now at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash free workshop. And I'm really excited today that you're here because one of the biggest questions I get from parents is around food. And I know that my own son was once a very, very picky eater, and I'm just here to give you hope that that can change. My son today is not a picky eater at all, and your child's picky eating a lot of the time has to do with their gut being ill. They're, they have food allergies that they have acquired, and we can talk a, a little bit about that in this episode, but that have developed. And so when they eat, they, they their stomach might hurt or they feel they get maybe headaches. And especially if a child's nonverbal, they're not able to always be able to express why they don't want that food. Or maybe it's a sensory issue where the food on their tongue feels so awkward that they, they haven't gotten to the stage where things have healed up enough where food is comfortable for them. And they can develop things like, you know, concert, you know, fears around them, some emotional issues too. So today we are talking about food sensitivities and autism. Fortunately for us, we have Dr. Kendra Becker here with us. And Dr. Becker has been on the show before where we did discuss things like genetic SNPs. And I will link to that as well as uh, as uh, all of the other, um, anything else that we discuss on today's show. I've created a page for you at for today's episode at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 49. And for those of you who are new to Dr. Becker, Dr. Becker is an integrated physician practicing in, for over 10 years. She is Connecticut's 4A specialist, and that stands for asthma, autism, allergies, and atopy, which is eczema or skin issues. She holds a naturopathic doctor degree and an MS in APRN, which is Advanced Practice Registered Nurse. She is board certified in both areas, and her specialties include MTHFR, fertility, and treatment of these four A's. Dr. Becker focuses on primarily treating the pediatric population and their parents, and Dr. Becker is adjunct faculty at two prominent universities where she teaches to physicians and precepts student doctors and nurse practitioners. Dr. Becker lectures all over the country on topics such as autism, the immune system, MTHFR, and genetic mutations that have health implications, and Q 
Keeping Healing in the Home. Dr. Becker is the author of A Delicious Way to Heal the Gut and released her second book, All You Can Eat, in May of 2018. And Dr. Becker was chosen as one of Connecticut's top naturopathic doctors and 10 best APRNs. So we're very fortunate to have her with us today to help us work through some of those food issues. And welcome, Dr. Becker, and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me back, Karen. I'm always excited to chat with you. Yeah, I love having you on. You're always so upbeat, too. I really have to say you're always so positive about everything you do because sometimes some of the issues that we work with are are challenging, you know, and it's, you know, we're here to give solutions and uh, share resources and basically just help parents understand what can be going on for their child so what they can do about things. So, um, I know that there are a lot of things that symptoms range from stomach pain and eczema to, you know, even behavioral. Their child can get really aggressive after they eat. They don't understand why. They, you know, sometimes people don't correlate it to foods or other um, uh, allergies or symptoms they might be having from those things. So, um, do you want to start out with anything in particular that comes to top of mind to begin? Let's talk about just the anthropology, because I think that's always a good place to start. So, you know, as humans, you know, we definitely still have a bit of a primordial brain. And so the the most primordial and most prehistoric that we are as humans in our life is when we're toddlers, right? So if we were all still cave people, toddlers would be the ones that would start to go out in nature and start to forage for their own food. So it's always really common, even in neurotypical kids, to hear a parent say, my child was a perfect eater and then they hit two and a half or three and now they only want to eat, you know, everything that's plain and bland and all white. And that's actually part of our, you know, prehistoric brain where those things, if we were foraging for our own food, happens to be the only things that are safe in nature to eat. So if you think about that. So I always bring that up with parents because, you know, it is really, really frustrating to have a a child that you know needs a nutrient-dense diet, especially in the presence of autism, when you're trying to actively recover a child and all they want to do is eat white and bland foods. So, and you are absolutely correct. You know, I always listen to your intros for me and I was like, what are we going to talk about for an hour? She did all the the highlights and the, the, the important topics in the intro, you know, but you're you're absolutely right. I mean, food and mood is a huge thing. And, you know, you had mentioned earlier, you know, sometimes kids have these reactions in their bodies where they end up with high levels of histamine because they eat food. So, you know, I hear it, and I'm sure you do too, over and over, a child comes into your office and they tell you that their diet is terrible. They're eating chicken nuggets, a specific brand of chicken nuggets, a specific brand of tater tots or french fries, nothing green, uh, cereal with white milk in a bowl. And, you know, so I always, you know, explain to the parents about the primordial brain and toddlers and how, you know, kids are really doing that as self-preservation. But what happens because the white foods that we have in our society now are all over-processed, over-salted and over-sugared and are really really nutrient poor, what happens is is those foods actually do create a histamine reaction in the mouth and on the tongues of these children. So as you know, histamine then, uh, you know, gets into the brain, presses on different areas of the brain causing inflammation, and that becomes a normal physiologic reaction for that child. So when that happens, that becomes that child's normal. So then you go and give them some broccoli, 
right? And, and they're not having anything of it because that doesn't elicit the same histamine reaction that you're getting in the brain. And so these food allergies and, and food sensitivities in these kids can absolutely positively be very, very challenging. So I always tell a really funny story, um, it's funny to me now, about one of my very first patients when um, I had opened my practice before I had children, and I maintain to this day that I learned far more as a mother than I ever did in any of the schooling that I did. And so, you know, when you're not a parent and you're seeing children, you can give great medical advice and you... And we'll, we can, um, you know, and what happens is with your medical advice is you don't you treat, you treat like a doctor, you don't treat like a parent. And so um, with that, I had a child who had a severe milk sensitivity. We got rid of the milk, and that poor child laid on the floor for three days in the house and yelled, milk, please, milk, please, milk, please. <laughs> but the mother maintained the um the diet and we were able to eliminate that food sensitivity. I've never done that since because I would never recommend we, you know, completely eliminate those types of allergenic foods in kids that are that sensitive. We're going to take a fairly short break here, but I think it's a perfect when we come, it's perfect when we come back. Uh, I know we've, we've intrigued a lot of, uh, a lot of years out there as far as um, certain things that are going on when, uh, well, you say you wouldn't normally do that and why a child is so sensitive to those initial stages. So we're going to take a short break right here. Uh, take, uh, you're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. Stay with us. Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and today we're talking about food sensitivities and autism. And we have Dr. Kendra Becker with us here today, who specializes in autism, autism spectrum disorders and, and uh, genetic issues and, and uh, things that surround food uh, greatly. So before the break, uh, Dr. Becker, you were talking about how you had this uh, one mother who knew she needed to eliminate dairy for her child, and when she did that, the child laid on the floor and asked for milk for three days. And and we should talk a little bit, too, about why that is, there, because there is an addiction, and I think it's important for parents to know, and as you mentioned, we have parents become much more educated by having a child, especially one with special needs, than in any type of practice if you know that's why I would say I like people to know that I am a parent of a child who once had autism because I have lived this and I know what it's like and the reason I'm here today is because of the research that I did over the last 14 years and very specifically for the reasons and I of autism to find out what was going on and I know that um, yeah it is difficult to just pull away foods really quickly from a child who is addicted to them for one like Gluten and casein, the proteins in dairy and wheat, actually create opiates in the system. So they are literally like a drug addict. And um, I'll, I'll let you, Dr. Becker, kind of further with that a little bit more and, and how you maybe maybe you can give suggestions to parents about how you like to um, just kind of slowly ease into the new diet. So you you are absolutely right in the nail on the head, and that's literally why that poor child, you know, because as a parent, it never occurred to me that that you, you when you're not a parent, you don't understand your child's suffering or a child's suffering. So to me, I'm thinking I'm the doctor. I'm going to remove the obstacle to cure, which is his milk sensitivity, and, and things are going to be better in a week or two. Uh, but the problem is, is there is, just like you mentioned, Karen, a physiologic addiction as that casein or that milk protein breaks down in the brain and the brain sees it as what they call a morphine analog. So there literally is a physiologic addiction to some of these foods, gluten being one. 
one of them and dairy, of course, being the other. And so in this little boy's case, that was literally his problem. Now, the reason that the mother had come in is because he was not eating any food. All he was doing is drinking gallons and gallons of milk a day. Now, you know, as I've evolved in practice, I would never recommend a cold turkey approach like that. It's just very difficult, both on the child and on the family. But some of the things I do recommend if we have children that come in that, you know, do have a milk, not only do they have a milk sensitivity, but they also have a dairy addiction, is I recommend you do a very simple change. So if the child is drinking, you know, and you know with all of these things, specific brands, textures, whatever, sometimes the smallest changes make the biggest difference. So if I that child in particular was drinking uh, whole milk out of a plastic bottle, so what I suggested to the mother to do was to switch initially into a paper container and use organic milk. And so sometimes it's just a matter of a gentle switch up. And then over time, what we do is we start diluting the milk down with coconut milk or almond milk or water or something like that to reduce the amount and the quantity that the child is consuming each day. Dairy in particular can be really challenging because it's very, very high in sugar. And so what happens with, with dairy is it becomes very, very quick energy for these kids. So they end up on this like parabola of blood sugar where their blood sugar is high, then their blood sugar is low. And it's much easier for them to grab a glass of milk than it is to actually eat food and stabilize their blood sugar. So along with their blood sugar going up and down, their mood also goes up and down. So there's a huge mood liability with kids that have dairy sensitivities. And again, of course, we have to, you know, contend with the case of morphone, the morphine analog. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways and a lot of really simple easy and inexpensive ways that we can help our kids, you know, kind of get off some of these foods that we know create a lot of issues with them, particularly in their brains. So the other thing that I also recommend with my patients is you just change up the whole thing. Like if your child always has a glass of milk at dinner, well, guess what? Change, you know, don't have dinner at the dinner table for a week or two. You know, eat dinner outside or make a picnic or something like that and change the whole routine. Because, you know, particularly with kids with autism, they're very, very entrenched in their routine. So it takes them a little while to adjust to a new routine. But once they do, the old routine can be completely forgotten. So that's also a, a nice easy, you know, kind of life hack is you just kind of, you know, upend the routine. And so those things can be really, really helpful for kids that are really struggling with with dairy in particular. But, you know, I mean, in some cases, the food allergy and food sensitivity list can go on and on and on. And uh, however, depending on what we're talking about as far as foods, in many cases, the reaction is exactly the same. It causes a histamine reaction on the tongue. It raises histamine levels in the mouth and then subsequently in the brain. And then it also raises histamine levels in the gut, right? And so we want to have histamine in our gut. And I think that's something that, that people get really kind of, you know, nerved out about. But, you know, we want to make sure that we have histamine on our in our GI tract because it does help us, you know, protect us from pathogens and, and toxins that could harm our organism. What we don't want is we don't want exceedingly high levels of histamine in the wrong places, and we don't want low levels of histamine. We want the right amount of histamine for our organism. And I think that's what people kind of miss the mark on when they're starting to talk about treatment, in my opinion. 
Right. Really high and really low levels. That's the, the, the transitional aspect. And there are so many parents, like in the beginning, it's important to starve out the candida and, you know, eliminating all the sugars. But when the body's so addicted to sugar, there's going to be a die-off reaction. And, um, and like you said, all of these pathogens and toxins. And as they die off, they release more toxins. And so, you know, the child's liver has to be supported, their lymphatic system, they, they should be on some binders to help really sop up some of those toxins and the transition just moves slowly. Parents get really, really eager. And I totally understand that, you know, like, oh, I can do it all right away. And then my child's going to get better faster. But it just, it doesn't work that way. And it's really a lot better to make the transition as slow and gentle as, as possible for both the parent and the family and the child. And, um, and I find that, you know, a lot of parents really are, you know, so many people get so used to having carbohydrates in their diet that when you tell them to, to, you know, cut them down, especially processed carbohydrates and eventually get rid of them, they're like, well, what else can they eat? You know, can I feed them potatoes? Can I feed them, you know, you know, other forms of gluten-free stuff? And most of the gluten-free stuff is just junk food. And so I'm really helping people try to understand the transition getting into, you know, really knowing that you don't have to have those carbs in your diet. You know, we've been led to believe so, but we're going to take a short break right here. When we come back, we can maybe talk a little bit about that, about some some uh, understanding around the carbohydrate issue and what might be helpful to uh, to for parents to know to to help keep them away from from carbohydrates. But then also things that you might suggest that um, a child could have if they wanted to. So we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host Karen Thomas. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and today we're talking about food sensitivities and autism. And uh, we have Dr. Kendra Becker here today with us, a naturopathic doctor who is a specialist in uh, in the food area, of course, and with autism. And before the break, we were talking about some of the reactions, especially histamines and, and various things that uh, we really don't want to have super highs and super lows and about transitioning. And there are a lot of foods that you really want to reduce from your diet. And I do have a, a, a free PDF download of the top seven foods to remove from your child's diet and explain why that will help to pretty quickly reduce the symptoms of autism. And that's right on my homepage at naturallyrecoveringautism.com. Um, but before the break, we were talking about some of these food substitutes that you know, parents are desperately looking for carbohydrates, I think because they get so used to having carbohydrates in their past and because their child has the addiction to those carbohydrates, the processed ones especially, they turn to sugars in the body. And we have candida pathogens in our gut. And if we're out of balance with them overgrown, like our kids usually are with them, those candida live off of those sugars and processed carbohydrates turn to sugars and fruit is sugar. So there's a lot of things that, uh, and we talked about dairy earlier, that those uh, those pathogens want. So it's, again, part of the addiction. So we have to wean our kids off of those. And Dr. Becker, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that for, you know, the transitioning out of carbohydrates and anything that you might suggest for parents of children with autism that are have these sensitivities, um, what what you suggest for maybe your patients that, that you feel are okay or what you do in that, you know, with carbohydrate issues. 
Sure. So, I mean, you know better than anybody, Taryn, that these parents come in here, these kids, and they've probably seen six other doctors before they showed up in your office, like they did the same thing with mine. And so you can't come at them with these giant, complex, you know, diets that, you know, you have to, you know, spin three times on your right leg and, and make bone broth in a pot that only is a, a particular way or whatever. It's very, very stressful. So initially what we do with kids that have high, high levels and high amounts of food allergies and food sensitivities is we do things that are, you know, very, very simple and easy. And so I have to spend a little time, you know, kind of making fun of gluten. I'm sorry about that, but it's just kind of my jam. And, you know, gluten is a number one, the first thing that I pull out of the diet. And I do that for the same reason that we had talked about earlier, where you just kind of have to upend the routine. So even though going from something like gluten, which is, you know, the gluten that we're eating today is not the gluten that our grandparents ate. It is you know, three to five times higher yield. It is loaded with glyphosate, which is a well-known hormone disruptor and cancer causer. And the other things, I mean, there's a multitude of things that are wrong with gluten. Number one, it's, it's they call it gluten or glutinous grains because the, the protein is like glue. It's called gluten. And so not only does it stick in your intestines where the body is digesting and trying to assimilate it, but it's also sticking in different areas of the brain if the if that child or adult has a, excuse me, has a leaky blood brain barrier. So, you know, these are things that we completely and totally want to eliminate. But what's happened, and like you and I were talking about on the break, is, you know, a decade or so ago, we all just kind of quit gluten and started eating all of this corn. And corn is as big of a perpetrator. It has a little bit different um, mechanism of injury than gluten does. But corn is wildly acidic, and, and it's the number one or number two GMO cash crop in America. And it is just something that humans in general don't very very well tolerate. So, you know, corn is, is a very likely causer of food allergy and food sensitivity. And the other problem with corn is that the corn protein is a smaller molecule than gluten, so it's much easier and much higher utilized in, in products. So if you're buying granola bars or packaged foods or whatever, it's very highly probable that there is a corn source in that product. And so these are things that we just try to completely and totally eliminate from the diet altogether. But you're right. And I live in the Northeast. Like, people love their carbohydrates up here. So, you know, we you have to kind of have a gentle conversation with people about that because, you know, what you have to do is really, really start healing and sealing the gut. So the first things that I do, of course, is, is get rid of the gluten, get rid of the corn, and um, as far as grains go, and then just really help support that patient through that step. And then they think their healing's done, right? And they come back in your office in like um, four weeks or, excuse me, in four months or so. And they're like, yeah, we're good. And I'm like, no, 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 that was step one. We've got like seven more steps to go. Right. <laughs> when people say, oh, I've, I've been, I've had my child on a gluten-free, casein-free diet for years. And, you know, and, and, and they're just not recovered. And I'm like, because that's, there's so much more than diet. Diet's hugely important. Don't, don't get me wrong there. But... Uh, huge, right. huge, hugely important. But yeah, there is a lot more to do, a lot more work to do. And that's, that's where, you know, you and I come in as the guides, you know, where the, the rest of the transitional process is, is enormous that needs to happen. But, uh, but that's where the, the good news is, it can happen. Um, so <laughs> the healing and sealing the gut, though, yes, of course, um, you've got to be able that gut brain connection is really, really strong. And, and um, it's important for people to, to understand that. And then, like you mentioned, corn sources, maltodextrin 
dextrin, you know, things that are derivatives of corn or wheat that they kind of change the name or hide them in uh, in ingredients and, and learning to, to read ingredient labels and understand what they are is really important. And so, Karen, the the brakes on your uh, TV, on your radio show are stressing me out, but I am going to tell you, I did have a patient in my office, because we're going to talk about phytates and lectins after the next break, because I can't do that in a couple minutes, but I do have a patient in my office, interestingly enough, he kept coming in with high blood sugar, high blood sugar, high blood sugar, high blood sugar, nothing else, like all of his other labs looked great, but we couldn't figure out why his blood sugar was high. So you know what I did? I pulled him off his vitamin C supplement, his vitamin C supplement was a corn-based supplement. Wow. And that's what brought his blood sugar down to normal. Yeah, it's those hidden sources that people, you know, yeah. really need to understand um, the fillers or the, the junk additives. And, and like like I said, it can just be in in a supplement. It could be a natural supplement. They might buy it at the health food store. It might look great. You're talking about a simple vitamin C supplement, but maybe the, uh, the capsule had an ingredient in it that wasn't right for the child. And that's what's really, really important to know that you can keep putting in toxins in the body when you you think you've reduced all of them. So there's a a lot of, yeah, side adjuncts to know. Yeah, and so when we come back, we're going to take a short break right here. When we come back, we will talk about some of those other things that you mentioned, lectins, and I know phenols are another big one too. So um, you're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism, and uh, I'm your host, Karen Thomas. Stay with us. Hi there, welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and today we're talking about food sensitivities and autism. We have Dr. Kendra Becker, a naturopathic doctor who specializes in this uh, this area, and we've been talking about various sensitivities to foods. And before we move on to a couple others that are very important for parents to know about, I was wondering, Dr. Becker, if you could give some suggestions um, for that transitional time, and even maybe later on, what you know, if a parent says, "Is there are there any like you said in Connecticut, especially in the wintertime, people are like, oh, where well, I want my carbs, they want some, you know, that comfort food, the 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 higher, um, you know, activity kind of foods." But the reality is, we stay full longer and get more out of a positive protein source and from vegetables. And of course, in the beginning, uh, fiber is super important for our kids, but we have to gauge how much our child can handle at first, because with a, an injured gut, they can't always take fiber right away. So I was wondering if you could just give some tips as far as like, you know, some food shifts uh, and um, that you do and um, what you maybe suggest to a parent who says, is there, are there any types of carbohydrates I can give my kids besides, you know, vegetables? Um, so that, you know, healing is so unique and so individualized and it really varies from parent or excuse me, from patient to patient. So in some cases I do, you know, depending on where we're at with gut healing, I will, uh, you know, recommend that a child continue to eat something like quinoa or, you know, rices. You know, we have to be really careful with the rices, with the arsenic Mm -hmm. compound, you know, compounds and things like that. So depending on which rice is the safest, sometimes we leave some rices in there and very very occasionally, you know, we leave sweet potatoes or, or sweet potatoes are generally safe for most people and we leave potatoes. But 
I have some very specific rules about carbohydrates if they are going to be included in the diet. And number one is we load them up with fat, right? So if we load them up with, you know, a high-quality grass-fed butter or olive oil or coconut oil or ghee or whatever you're using, that fat actually helps delay gastric emptying. So what that means is that we have a better chance of actually digesting and assim- assimilating whatever nutrients are in those grains and actually keeping the fiber intact to be able to move our bowels properly. But the biggest problem and the biggest challenge with with grains in general are the phytates and the lectins. And so really what those are, I mean, in in naturopathic medicine, we call those anti-nutrients. So those are things that actually block the body's ability to absorb essential minerals in particular. And here we know in the Northeast, people have very, very low magnesium levels as compared with the rest of the country. And magnesium is one of those minerals that's very, very susceptible to being blocked by the phytates and the lectins in the grain. So even though in some cases I do allow them in a healing diet, you know, along the healing trajectory, it's definitely something I do try to strive for in most cases to eliminate completely, at least for a period of time. And yeah, kids just have to, you know, eat a lot of vegetables. You know, what I tell my parents in my practice is that, you know, we are looking for the biggest bang for our nutritional buck. You know, we want the highest amount of nutrient density in every bite our child takes. And so that's, that's where the the value, the food value is. You know, things like most carbohydrates and, of course, all of the processed carbohydrates included have very, very little, you know, nutritional value. And so what happens with people is, is they're constantly hungry when they're, you know, eating lots and lots of carbohydrates because they're not actually filling up on nutrients. They're filling up on calories. And so the body's craving nutrients, but we're feeding it with calories. So it's kind of like putting gasoline in a diesel uh, gas tank. And so, you know, I, I just, as opposed to like trying to come up with some sort of hack or whatever for the parent, you know, the parents in my office, I honestly just tell them the truth and let them make the decision. And some of them, based on on where they're at with that child's healing, do continue to include some grains, you know, with, you know, some mindfulness around it, and some completely take them out. And so it's a matter of just really understanding and knowing the healing trajectory and and really knowing and understanding that particular child and where they're at. And those are things that can certainly be cycled back in and back out. But, you know, some of the grains and and gluten is included in this, you know, can cause, you know, so we have a chronic leaky gut in a child with autism, for example, and then we constantly are feeding them gluten, gluten accelerates the leaky gut for up to three hours after consumption. So if you have a child that's constantly eating gluten, you are constantly perpetuating a leaky gut in that child. And so these are things that, you know, if we know that, we can make the right decisions for our child instead of feeling like we're conflicted about this, that, and the other thing. But yeah, we eat a lot of vegetables and we eat a lot of protein and and it is what it is. And, you know, the kids that come to my house and, and play with my kids, they do get kind of frozen green beans and almonds as snacks. I mean, it's just <laughs> I mean, that's very popular last week. Don't but you? they're much calmer and happier when they're at your house, too, versus the uh, the party where they're they're all wild all over the place and out of control. And nobody can really figure out why. They must just be really excited or hyped upon it. just must be the sugar alone. They don't realize that, yeah, you're right, all of those issues with the, the gluten and the other, you know, uh, all of the food colorings, everything else that's in those things as well. So, yeah, agreed. Yeah, that's it. it's very important to um, just 
help educate parents as well as possible so that they they understand why they're doing what they're doing. Because I think the more education you have behind something, the more reality you have to why you don't want you yourself or your child to eat that food. And then it as it becomes more and higher on the importance level because of the understanding. And once I think once a parent sees the results, the changes in their child and the positive changes, then they they really start to understand it's that real that initial stage I find people are just struggling and then once you kind of make it over this little mark where the it seems like the gut starts to heal and the child's the addiction levels are dropping and uh, to the bad foods then then they their their behaviors and their health all of a sudden just really start to improve quickly and the picky eating starts to go away which is like the parents dream you know <laughs> so they will eat more vegetables and proteins and, and not argue about it but you're right if a child's not going to eat very much like they'll only take a couple bites of something it might as well be a couple bites of something really healthy versus just a, a filler that's not going to give them any nutrition and might actually turn to sugar in the body and feed the bad uh, the bad bacteria there so, um, so we talked about lectins um, blo- blocking the body's ability to absorb nutrients. And lectins are, they're making the news more and more these days as well as people, um, like I, even a food like cashews are high in lectins. So you have to know which foods to eat and which not as well. And then you talked about, uh, we talked about uh, phytates. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and again, phytates bind to certain vitamins and minerals and they inhibit absorption. And the other thing that phytates do is they, of course, can give you gas. And so if you have a child that has an inflamed or an, uh, yeah, an inflamed gut or a swollen gut, the last thing you want to do is actually produce more gas in there and create all kinds of other imbalances in the gut. And as you know, I mean, even though we're talking specifically today about gut healing and however, gut healing, as you know, doesn't have to do with that one single organ. It's actually a multi-system, you know, level of healing. And so even though the symptoms may be in the gut as far as distress, we may also be seeing the symptoms systemically where we're getting high levels of adrenal hormones, we're getting behavior issues, skin issues, asthma in some cases. And so, yes, the all the healing has to start and end in the gut, but it doesn't mean that we're not seeing that you know, the, the sequela of, you know, imbalance in the rest of the body. As you know, I, I you know, I know you know that. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of people listening who don't know that. So it's very important. And I'm really, really glad that you said that. I mean, binding to vitamins uh, in the body and giving gas and that, and also knowing that it is a multi-system healing when we're healing the gut. We're not just healing the gut. There's so much more that that means. We need to take a short break right here. You're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. Stay with us. We will be right back and we will continue this call. Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism, and I'm your host, Karen Thomas. Today, we're talking about food sensitivities and autism, and we have Dr. Kendra Becker, a naturopathic doctor with us who specializes in these uh, in, in food sensitivities and autism and all that that implies, and uh, it's important. We talked about lectins and phytates and things, other types of foods that you need to know about that will block the body's ability to absorb nutrients or bind to the vitamins and, and give a lot of gas. And we might not realize that a food contains those. And the next one we're going to discuss now are phenols. And phenols are, uh, they can be, um, you know, we need those dark colored fruits and vegetables like blueberries and uh, and um, and uh, dark green leafies. But the, 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 the darker the color, even including spinach, 
are, phenols are in those. And so f- there can be a phenol sensitivity. And we need those foods because they're high antioxidant and nutrient. But there are some things to know about them if your child has phenol sensitivities. So, Dr. Becker, um, why don't I turn this over to you and, and talk a little bit about uh, phenols, you know, explain maybe what they, what they are and where they're found, and then, um, you know, some of the reactions that you see with them. Oh, absolutely. So phenols are really interesting because, you know, they hit the news, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, and it justified everybody drinking red wine every night, right? So phenols protect the heart. Phenols are good for your vascular system. Phenols are these magical things. So then people are like, hey, if we're having phenols as as adults, then maybe we need to give them and make sure that they're, you know, in the diets of our children. But the problem with phenols is, is that they can actually cause high levels of reactions in little kids that have leaky guts. And what's interesting about phenols is it's not, at least in my practice, I don't know if your practice has been different, but in my practice, it's never the first sensitivity that ever gets picked out. Like you have to kind of peel away the onion a little bit and then you're like, aha, there it is, the phenols. Definitely. And so what happens with the phenols is, is uh, initially it causes digestive distress. So a child eats, like you said, like a dark colored food, like blueberries or cherries or, or dark grapes or whatever. And then um, the first thing that happens, at least that I see as a provider, is their little ears get red. That's how you know they, these kids have phenol sensitivities. And it's connected with a couple of different genetic mutations that I uh, speak about and recognize in my practice often. And one of them happens to be COMP-T, catechol-O-methyltransferase. And so so that particular reaction then in many cases leads to stomach pain. And so what happens in kids, especially like we had spoken about earlier, even if children are nonverbal, they certainly still experience pain. And the pain, even if it's in the gut, may not translate as looking like belly pain. So sometimes kids complain of joint pain. Sometimes they have um you know, problems with their uh, gait or their mobility. Sometimes they have temper tantrums. I have a little girl in my practice, if she has a phenol exposure, she basically gets suicidal. She's like seven, you know, and and so these are are things that parents definitely pick up with little kids. And so uh, the other problem is is that phenols can be added into things, you know, in processed foods and, and can be found in things you know, in different um, processed foods as ingredients like MSG and all kinds of other, you know, hydrolyzed vegetable protein and all kinds of other additives that we generally don't want in our food. So, you know, we want to be really careful, number one, about, you know, reading labels in our packages. But two, here we are, we're thinking we're doing, uh, oh, Watermelon super high in, in phenols too. Uh, we're doing the right thing by making sure our kids get lots of fruits and vegetables and they still can be simply reacting to those and it's kind of a, that's kind of a bummer I have to say. <laughs> It is. There's so many good foods that have them in there. But as do you notice too, as the gut begins to heal and the system comes back into balance, and I would say know your your limits. So don't you know don't just overload the system with with them again. But are you finding that um, that over time, once things start healing up, that they're able to tolerate some? Oh, absolutely. And actually what I find is phenol in most cases, the phenolic foods, not the additives and the chemicals, but the phenolic foods generally are easily reintroduced. And so, you know, it's it's not, it doesn't have to be a really complicated thing. I've had very good luck using probiotics and, you know, depending on the genetic makeup of the children, even some B vitamins just to be able to support the phenol sensitivity as we're healing the gut. So, you know, all of this, of course, comes from a 
leaky gut. And so you have to figure out what is the imbalance in the gut to be able to be able to support that child so that we can resolve these issues and they can go back to eating a normal, healthy diet that includes some of these foods for sure. Right. Because the, the goal is really to get the, the child to the point where they can tolerate the healthy foods. They don't ever need the junk food. I mean, honestly, never really need gluten or processed carbohydrates or all these fillers of junk in your life. They're not good for you. They're not good for our kids. They're not good for anybody. Um, but being able to, to give these nutrient dense, uh, healthy foods to your child again and let the body, the body knows what to do, but we've got to get the inflammation out. We've got to get the toxins out and healing up some of these, these issues that, um, that they have. So once they do, then the body can restore itself and, and, and then we can eat these positive foods again. And that's why the, the child eventually won't be a picky eater again. Um, the last thing too, another thing, salicylates. So you want to talk a little bit about salicylates and where they're found and what they, what, what uh, symptoms you notice from those? Sure. So salicylates, are, you know, are similar to just like a lot of the other things that we have talked about where they can be inflammatory in the gut, worse than somebody who's got a leaky gut. And the problem with salicylates is, is they, you know, are found in a lot of the herbs that we use and they're found in a lot of the common vegetables that we eat. And so the problem with salicylates is, again, it's ubiquitous in our diet. And I'll never forget, um, years ago I used to do a lot of preconception health care and, you know, in these packets that I would give these parents would be all of these you know, different, you know, be mindful of this and be mindful of this. And it would go through what phenols were and salicylates were and how to avoid gluten and this, that, and the other thing. And I'll never forget this adorable couple came back to me and said, well, what are we supposed to eat exactly? I was like, exactly. Oh, I, well, I hear that from point. parents all the time. I can't feed them anything. Uh, yes, you can. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> so anyway, but yes, we definitely need to talk a little bit more about salicylates after the break. So I won't okay. get into it because then once I start with my thought, then it keeps going and going. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. And we don't want to break that thought. So let's go ahead and take a short break. And uh, you're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas. Stay with us. We will. Hi there and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas. And today we're talking about the all important food sensitivities in autism and diet shifts that you can make for your child that will help them to not only feel better and have their health be better, but by uh, by healing up the systems, multiple systems that we do with food, that again is just one piece of the autism recovery pie. It's it's a very important piece, but it's not the only thing to do, but, but definitely the place to, to begin and uh, know that your child can not only feel better and be healthier, but their behaviors will change as well. They're calmer, they sleep better. So it's so important to know this. And I want to, I want to be sure that I have linked to everything, including Dr. Becker's uh, site on a page I created uh, for today's episode. At, we will find everything at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 49. So Dr. Becker, uh, we started talking a little bit about salicylates uh, before the break. So you want to continue with those? Yes, absolutely. So for those of you who aren't familiar, salicylates are found in a number of places, right? They're found in, in coffee. I know that makes everybody sad. Honey, you know, certainly a lot of teas, nuts, spices, and vegetables. And so, and it's also found in, in aspirin and Pepto-Bismol and a, and a host of other medications. But the concern with salicylates is, is really that a lot of the reactions that we see with salicylate sensitivity actually kind of looks like asthma. It's, you know, a systemic 
dynamic reaction. There is wheezing involved, and we certainly can create huge issues and imbalances in the gut. So this is, is definitely something that needs to be addressed for anybody that's sensitive to it. There was a study, I think, that came out a couple years ago that talked about salicylate sensitivity and its relationship to the diagnosis of uh, IBS or colitis or one of those, you know, kind of bowel conditions. So it's definitely something that should be looked into. And the statistic, I think, is somewhere around uh, up to 20 of the U.S. population can have some level of, of a salicylate sensitivity. So certainly the more leaky the gut, the more, you know, chance we have to be able to have concerns with salicylates. But, you know, I know we're at the end of the segment and I got to talk really fast now. But, um, you know, what I want to just remind everybody is, is that, you know, picky eaters and, and kids that get addicted to foods and things like that are really just letting you know that their bodies are completely out of balance. You know, it is those narrow palates and those, you know, picky eaters and, and kids that only want to eat one or two foods or whatever are just trying to protect their body in the in their only innate response that they have. Then as we start to reduce the inflammation in the gut and seal the gut, you will notice that their palates will open up and, you know, getting the most nutrient-dense food into their bodies certainly accelerates their healing across the board. And I think that's really the take-home message here. You know, we just talked about all the things that could be wrong. We never talked about all the stuff that could be right. But we'll do that next time. Right, Karen? (laughs) (laughs) But all of the things we talked about will help make it right. So that's that's the moral of the story here. You're absolutely right. So, but I, and again, I thank you so much for having me on today. And I think this is super, super important information just about how, you know, food can be our, you know, greatest form of medicine or our greatest form of poison. Like, you know, you pick, you know, we all have the opportunity to pick, but we also have to remember too, that no diet is, is perfect for absolutely everybody. And we have to kind of peel away the layers in our healing to make sure that we're in the right place at the right time with our, with our patient or our child. And so I think that's a really important point to make too, because, you know, our diets do evolve. I mean, I've seen lots of kids for years on, you know, grain-free diets that have, you know, reintroduced grains at some point and things like that. And so all hope is not lost, you know, but it definitely is one of those things that the diet is, is the key number one thing that we need to do. Oh, I never right. even talked about myself. Find me on the web. Karen knows where to get me. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Becker has a couple of books out on food. She's got a great website. And again, everything is linked to you, uh, linked for you at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 49. So you can go and find all of Dr. Becker's resources on that page as well. And we are out of time. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Becker. Greatly appreciate you. Love having you on the show. You're so knowledgeable and so fun to have. And uh, thank you, parents for being here and getting the resources that you need for your child and next week's show will be all about histamines we talked about that today's show and that's what we're talking about next week uh, in a lot more depth so join us next week you're listening to naturally recovering autism i'm your host karen thomas until then take care and i will see you